Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and racial capitalism and the beauty of resistance? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith organizing coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe that white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up, and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. So as Nicola said last week, this year we're focusing our Eastertide episodes on the lectionary passages from the Book of Acts, and specifically to explore what those scriptures have to teach us about what we at Surge call mutual or shared interest. In other words, what our own stakes are as white Christians in the work of dismantling white supremacy. We're looking at the early and very Jewish Jesus movement, asking what made it so compelling to Gentiles? What was their mutual shared interest in joining a Jewish resistance movement led by poor people, who the Romans, aka Gentiles, considered disposable and or a threat? What was at stake for them? What can we learn from them about our shared interest as white Christians in dismantling white supremacy and collective liberation? We'll also be looking for the ways folks failed to understand their shared interest and how that led to more oppression, including a lot of anti-Semitism that shows up in these texts. If we white Christians are going to stay in this fight for the long haul, we need to get clear about why we are in it and what we have to gain. We hope you'll join us for the whole series as we deepen our understanding of how we can all get free together. reading from Acts, well, it has to be one of the most famous of Christian stories, and it isn't about Gentiles at all. It's about Paul and his famous Damascus Road experience, a story not only depicted in art across the centuries, but also a story that became a template, perhaps the template, 
for how we are supposed to understand not only Christian experience, but also Christian theology. Here's the reading. And remember that Saul is the same person as Paul as we get started here. This is from Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now I'm going to summarize uh, here that God says to Ananias, a disciple in Damascus, to go to Saul and lay hands on him so his sight is restored. And Ananias doesn't really want to do that because he's heard how much, and I quote, evil Saul has done. But God sends him anyway, as God generally does. So we pick back up at verse 17. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. There you have it. The story of Paul's conversion. Or is it? What happens to Paul on that Damascus road? And how does what we understand about what happens to Paul on the Damascus road impact how we understand Well, I want to say literally everything else, but let's stick with the theme of this series, which is how we understand our mutual interest as white Christians in joining the fight for collective liberation. What happens to Paul on that Damascus road? Let's talk about this. And let me say right up front that I'm basing my thoughts in this podcast on the research offered in the Jewish Annotated New Testament and also, and especially, all my learning with my dear teacher, Dr. Pamela Eisenbaum who is a Jewish feminist New Testament scholar who specializes in studying Paul. She was my professor in seminary at the Isle of School of Theology. And if you've not read her book, Paul Was Not a Christian, well, please do. It may just change your life like her teaching changed mine. Anyway, we think we know what happened to Paul on that road. We have been taught over centuries that Paul had a conversion experience, that in that moment, Paul was converted from something to something better. Generally, Christian tradition says that Paul was converted from Judaism to Christianity. At best, we say 
in an attempt to avoid the blatant Christian supersessionism in that original take, we say, well, he converted from some kind of a Judaism to another kind. But either way, the point is that Paul converted from something lesser to something better. A lesser religion to the better, quote, true one. From a violent religious practice, Judaism without Jesus, to a nonviolent one, Jesus solving the problem of violent Judaism. You can tell there's a problem here, right? Right away, we know that conversion is about changing from something bad to something good. We don't always talk about conversion like this, of course. Sometimes it's just changing a thing into a different thing. But when we talk about Paul's conversion specifically, and Christian conversion more broadly, we are definitely talking about converting from something bad to something good. Conversion from a past lesser self to a new good Christian self. Conversion from sinner to Christian. Conversion from pagan to Christian. Conversion from an inferior religion to Christian. Being born again gets mapped onto this experience as well. And even in Christian denominations that don't particularly stress conversion or born-again experiences, there's still the sense that as long as we are claiming, claiming Christian, we are still on the good side of the good and bad binary. For example, I was baptized by my Methodist grandfather when I was an infant. I was raised Presbyterian and joined the church as a full member when I was nine years old, and I cannot pinpoint a moment a moment when I could say I had a conversion experience, certainly not a born-again experience. I had to ask my daddy what that was when a school friend took me to a revival once, and I didn't understand it, because I was just Christian from pretty much birth. And yet still, I knew that being Christian made me one of the good ones, and somehow I needed to be watchful for anything, any behavior or especially belief that would make me bad you could lose it, that good status. I'm sharing this example because I I want to be clear that this Christian formation, this shaping of us as white Christians into a good, bad conversion binary is central to Christian understanding and practice no matter what denomination we are. Progressive mainliners like me don't get to escape from this any more than anyone else. So to tie it all together, Christians are good, because Christianity is good, because of Paul's conversion from something bad to something good. And Paul's conversion is held up as the thing, the most key thing for Paul and thus for the history of Christianity and the development of Christian theology. As Dr. Eisenbaum says in her book, Paul's conversion is what the Big Bang is to physics. The thing is in itself is an enigma but somehow it is supposedly the explanation for everything else. An enigma that is supposedly the explanation for everything else. Let's get into that, shall we? What happens to Paul on the Damascus Road? 
clearly something does, but the truth is we don't really know, or perhaps better said, we don't know what we think we know. So let's start getting at this question of what happened to Paul by peeling back layers of imposed Christian supersessionism on Paul's story. Layers imposed in part through using the conversion lens to tell and understand his story. So let's start with how Paul tells the story himself, which is, Paul doesn't ever describe what happens on the Damascus Road in his own letters and his own words. He only ever mentions this experience twice, in Galatians and Philippians, and it's not to expound upon its meaning and how it influences his theology and ministry, but to defend that his experience of Jesus Christ, who he never knew in the flesh, is just as valid as the apostles who did know Jesus personally. He uses the experience as a defense of his authority, but he never actually describes that experience or its important or its importance for how he understands his work. There's no flashing lights or temporary loss of sight or months of tutoring with Ananias. He mentions persecuting the church, which is a poor translation because the church did not even exist at this point, and a revelation about Jesus from God. That's about it. And as Dr. Eisenbaum points out, Paul never uses the language of conversion or of repentance for himself this moment, or his spiritual journey. And also, when we peel back those layers, it becomes pretty clear that Paul never stopped being Jewish. The most obvious point is, there was no such thing as Christianity to convert to in Paul's lifetime, just lots of conversation and movements within Judaism. The argument for Paul maintaining and valuing his Jewishness is much more than that simple fact, though, and for more on that... I commend to you yet again Dr. Eisenbaum's book, or we would be here all day. All of that is to say that in Acts, we need to hold carefully what Luke, the author, is telling us here. Now, if you caught my podcast on Luke 13 from back in March, you know I don't think Luke, the author, is a very reliable narrator of Judaism or of Paul, for that matter. I'm not going to say all that over again, so check out the March 13th episode. I'll link to it in the transcript, too. And I'll just briefly say that in that episode, I noted that Luke had has his power analysis wrong. And today I want to add, Luke didn't understand his mutual interest in joining the Jesus movement either, and so ends up undermining a Jewish freedom movement in his attempt to bring Gentile allies into that movement. And an example of that is found right here in the story about Saul slash Paul on the Damascus Road, where Luke describes him as being not only incredibly violent, breathing threats and murder. So in the previous chapters, Paul is described as participating in the murder of Stephen, so violent. But Luke also says Paul does this violence on the orders of Jewish leadership. He goes and asks for, for this permission, right? So this is but one of many examples and acts of how Luke paints Jews as violent in their rejection of Jesus, while on the other hand, Romans and other Gentiles are much more open to the disciples' message. Luke in Acts also contradicts what Paul says about his own self and his ministry in his own words. And here on the Damascus Road, Luke has just made stuff up about Judaism in general and Jewish activity during the time of Jesus and Paul's life. 
So there is no evidence whatsoever that Jews went around hunting Jesus' followers or anyone else they disagreed with to haul them off to Jerusalem, like some kind of first century death squad. On the contrary, evidence shows that synagogues were places of discussion and disagreement, and there was space for a variety of movements within Jewish collective life. Additionally, Luke gives legal power to the high priest here that he did not in actuality historically have. So yeah, Luke is not entirely reliable. His inaccurate action-adventure style writing sows deep seeds of Christian supersessionism and anti-Semitism visible right here in the story. And so we can see why we think this is a story about converting from bad to good. And yet, and yet, my work on this text has challenged me to not think of Luke the author within a good-bad binary. I know, ironic, right? And so I would like to point out, in the spirit of what's not actually in the text, that Luke doesn't say that Paul converted either. There's no language of conversion, no language of repentance. Paul is baptized, but there's no mention of repentance. And in Acts, repentance is not often connected to baptism. It's more like people are baptized into the movement community, which feels like what happens here. And nowhere does it say that when the scales fell from Paul's eyes, that his Jewishness fell off along with them. So it seems like not even Luke, describing this supposedly momentous event, thinks it's actually a conversion experience. So if it's not a conversion, then what is it? What happens to Paul on the Damascus Road? I know you've been waiting for an answer to this question. And there's been a lot of unraveling and layering to get us here because this story is too important to not handle with care. So this is what I think happens. And the key is in Paul's behavior, what he is like before and after this moment. Because there's no denying that something changes. He himself says so. He was a persecutor, but then has this experience and becomes the persecuted. And I think what happens is he changes his mind about his power analysis. Or perhaps Jesus knocks him on his butt to help him realize his power analysis has been wrong. We've talked about before on this podcast that the fact that, yes, there were Jewish collaborators with Rome and how Rome appointed the high-level Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. That is not the same thing as assuming that the Jewish people were resistant to Jesus and the disciples' message and responded violently to it, to it because something is inherently wrong with Judaism. Because there's nothing inherently wrong with Judaism, not any more or any less than any other group of humans trying to create meaning out of their experience together and with the divine. But oppressed people choosing sides with the oppressor? That's a thing to get mad about. People collaborating with oppressors, which is not a Jewish problem, but a human one. So what if Paul was one of those collaborators? Maybe he thought it was better to keep quiet to keep Rome's pressure off their backs, or maybe he legit thought collaborating with Roman power was a good thing. Regardless, reading Paul as a collaborator explains why he would, quote, persecute the followers of a man executed by Rome for being a threat. He wasn't persecuting 
them because they violated some non-existent rules of Judaism, but rather for being a threat to Rome. And so this moment on the Damascus Road, I think it's a moment like it is for so many of us when we have that realization that the world is not what we thought it was, that cops don't keep us safe, that capitalism won't let us be human, that investing in the machinery of death only serves to kill us all. In Christian terms, it's finding Jesus right in front of us, calling us to accountability. It's a calling into a new understanding of purpose, a clarity of who wields power and how and why. And yes, it requires change. Paul changes. There's no doubt about that. After this experience, he begins preaching to Gentiles, setting up communities throughout the Roman Empire who endeavor to live in total non-conformity to the ways of Rome. That tells me This Damascus Road experience was not about shedding his Jewishness, but about shedding his allegiance to Rome while remaining steadfastly a Jew. Luke, with his concern about creating a message that is palatable to Gentiles and Romans in particular, obscures the power analysis and his own stakes in following Jesus as a Gentile, making it easy for future Roman Christians who cannot have their power challenged to turn this Damascus Road story into something it's not, a conversion that's a rejection of Judaism, a conversion from a bad person to a good person. But Paul never says this. And in fact, Luke never says this. It's time to let this go, beloveds. This good-bad binary that gets set up with what we are taught Paul's Damascus Road experience was has caused so much harm. It is perhaps the binary that roots all the other binaries, binaries that feed supremacy systems, good on one side, bad on the other. Binaries like white, black, cis, trans, male, female, Civilized, savage, citizen, foreigner, well, disabled, innocent, criminal, straight, queer, wealthy, poor. You can think of more. The good-bad binary is the excuse for enslavement, for genocide, for anti-Semitism, for exploitation, for militarism, And it also infects our movement for liberation by setting up some of us as the good converted ones, and thus everyone else is bad. And we could spend some time here talking about that, about how Christian dominance means this binary is built into the structures of almost everything, even supposedly not Christian institutions. But I'm thinking here about what abolitionist Miriam Kaba says. I don't think there are good people there are people who do good and bad things. And when I reflect on that, and I think about what the binary conversion version of Paul's story has done to us, 
and I think about mutual interest, our shared stakes as white Christians in the work of collective liberation. I think about the overwhelming anxiety to be good that so many of us white Christians carry. To be a good person, to be a good Christian, to be a good woman or man, even to be a good ally. It's the anxiety to be good that makes us wonder if there's something wrong with us, if we have a mental illness or addiction or are poor or are disabled or queer or question the church's teachings or on and on. I said earlier how even though I haven't had a conversion experience, I still find myself constantly monitoring myself for my goodness. For years, I thought that if I hurt my beloved, even unintentionally, or if I even expressed a need that might ask something of her, that it was the end of the world and she'd leave me. Not because of anything she did, but out of my own anxiety to be good. I don't think this anymore, thank God. (laughs) For years, I thought being a good ally meant showing up everywhere for everything and holding myself in so tightly so that I would never make a mistake, never say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing until I finally broke down under the weight of it. These days I see the anxiety for goodness showing up in me like a kind of smugness that I'm more converted to collective liberation than other white people, which is not how we're going to get free. The anxiety for goodness in me even looks like trying to make this podcast perfect and good for you, so I have to stop giving you examples now. And so that anxiety gets in the way of true human relationship because good means perfect. Good means I can't make a mistake or I'll get thrown out. Good means you have to be perfect or I'll throw you out. Good means conforming to the world around me. Good means I can't express my needs or disagree with what goodness is supposed to look like for my gender or my racial identity. Good means I have to refuse the notion that I can cause harm. Good means there is no need for accountability because, well, I'm a good person. I can't be racist. I am a good person. This anxiety over our goodness, it's fucking exhausting, y'all. Don't you think so? I can think of so many ways it messes us up as white Christians, how it impacts our relationships with others, with God, with ourselves. So remember what Kava says. There's no good people. There's just people who do good and bad things. We cause harm. We fuck up. We do brilliant acts of incredible love. We are all these things. We humans are, as my beloved mentor, Dr. Vincent Harding said, a magnificent mess. Paul was a magnificent mess. And on the Damascus Road, Paul was not converted out of his mess. Paul was not converted out of badness into goodness. Paul was called into accountability, which is a very different thing. And he is not thrown away, but nurtured. The same is true for us, beloveds. We are just people. A magnificent mess. We don't have to strive for goodness because the divine already declared us good. Kitov, very good, in the beginning, 
in the act of our creation, a magnificent mess. Kitov. Very good. And when we release our anxiety about being good, so much more is possible, including for our own well-being. We can offer harm reduction instead of punishing substance use. We can center transforming conditions that cause harm instead of investing in prisons and armies. We can create safety for and with one another instead of depending on cops and courts. We can build economic systems that allow everyone to thrive instead of ones that create poverty as a necessity and then blame poor people for being poor. We can offer disability justice-centered care and infrastructure instead of shaming and isolating folks with mental illness or disability. We can nurture practices of accountability instead of throwing people away. We can queer everything instead of policing where people are on a binary. We can love one another in the mess that we are instead of relying on supremacy systems to uphold our good sense of worth. We can hold the complexity of the lives of our ancestors instead of venerating their harmful behavior or ignoring them outright. We can hold the complexity of our own lives and choices with care and rigor instead of refusing accountability under the guise of our goodness. I'll say it again. On the Damascus Road, Paul was not converted out of his mess. Paul was not converted out of badness into goodness. Paul was called into accountability, which is a very different thing. And he is not thrown away, but nurtured. The same is true for us, beloveds. The same is true for us. You do not have to be good, Mary Oliver famously says in her poem, Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. Discovering this poem was such a gift for me as I began to release my own striving for goodness. Obviously, I'm still working on it. And I actually think we can't do it alone. I've needed community wrestling with this together. So for your call to action this week, I invite you to reflect on how the anxiety about goodness shows up in your life, your spiritual practice, and how you approach your movement work. Where do you see it showing up? How might you move differently? What does releasing the good-bad binary make possible for you? And do that reflection not only on your own, but with your people, right? Collectively, talk about it together. Watch for that binary dynamic together. Practice new, messy, magnificent ways of being together.
Thanks as always for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. I had a lot to say today. Once I started pulling on that thread of goodness, the whole thing came unraveled. So thank you for being here. And we'd love to hear from you all, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks, by filling out the listener survey on our podcast page at surge.org, S-U-R-J dot O-R-G. And give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org. And our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And we will be back next week with a resistance word from Sharon Fenema. And of course, as always, a huge thanks to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap.